Exploring the Word of God together allows us to share in the joy that comes from discovering the words of hope and salvation which overflow from our Bibles. Upper Room Media presents to you this educational, enlightening and entertaining Bible study. Prepare to be transformed. All right, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. So if you remember, whenever we were at the end of chapter 7, we stopped at verse 52, right? And I told you that from 7.53 until 8.11, there was something unique about this passage that, you know, we'll get back to a little bit later, right? So this is when we want to talk about this specific passage and why it's unique and why we jumped right over it and we're going back to it. Okay, so let's read it first and then we'll, uh, we'll start to discuss this passage. So from 7.53, okay? And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery, in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his fingers, as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the eldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. All right, so what's the big deal about this passage and why give it all this attention to pause and go back to it? So for starters, this passage is not present in the first manuscripts of the Gospel of John, okay? And there's a case that you can make that this was originally written by St. John the Evangelist, right? But the overwhelming evidence is that John himself did not write this and this was not a part of the original manuscripts, okay? So if you're to make a case for why this was originally in, in the gospel, um, this is pretty much all that one could say, right? And then I'll talk about the case for why it's not actually um, a, a part of the original manuscripts and, and why that even matters and you know what do we make of that, all right? So for starters, there's 
some Joannine style or, or methods in the writing in this specific passage. Right? Like whenever he says, go and sin no more, we saw this with the paralytic in John chapter 5 as well. Um, there's this trial motif, and we see that throughout all of the, the passages we've been studying in John. Like there's this controversy, there's this debate, there's a trial. Like John's always making a case for Christ. Okay, it's like a court case throughout the whole gospel. And there's also this illustration of Christ as a figure that transcends Moses, like one that transcends the law, or that he fulfills the law throughout the gospel. Okay, so you see that in common throughout the entire gospel of St. John. So one could say, okay, it fits, right? It fits in what John wrote throughout the entire gospel. But there's a lot to say about why, you know, this doesn't really fit in the progression of what John has been writing about throughout this specific passage. Okay, so the theme is all about forgiveness and compassion. And John does talk about that, but it's not really his focus. Like that's what you see in the accounts of the Synoptic Gospels. Okay, and especially Luke. And, and you'll see in some earlier manuscripts, this passage was actually in the transcript or the document that Luke wrote in his gospel. Okay, so th- there's a lot more consistency with the style and the theme of St. Luke's focus in his gospel than John's. Okay. The flow is obviously interrupted by this passage because we see that this whole dialogue takes place um, at the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And then there's this dialogue that Christ has with the people. And then all of a sudden, this case with the woman comes in. And then if you notice in verse 12, 8 verse 12, it says, Again, Jesus said to them, Right? But they had already just left. Right? So it, it just doesn't flow. It, it actually fits with what St. John wrote in chapter 7, verse 52. Right? And, and so the very next verse from 752 would be 8.12. Right? And that's whenever he says that I am the light of the world. Okay? Because he's talking about the, the, the water and, and the light and all of that as the significant themes of the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And we spoke about that several times, okay? And so it just like jumps into this place like out of nowhere, okay? And so the opponents in this specific case are described in the Pharisees, right? John doesn't really mention the scribes and the Pharisees. Every time he's talking about the opponents, he's talking about the Jews. Right? So that's very different from the language that John is using throughout um, the whole gospel. Okay? Now, you might say, okay, sure, you know, these are a, a little strange, yeah, it's out of place, but like, what's to say this really wasn't from the original manuscripts that we have from the Gospel of St. John? So, This is the biggest proof that we have uh, to warrant um, what we believe about this passage. So, this isn't found in any of the Greek manuscripts until the 6th century. 
Okay? And so the earliest record we have of this is from the Vulgate, which is um, the, the Latin translation of the, uh, of the scriptures in the fourth century. Okay? Um, and so at least by like the year 400, so beginning of the fifth century actually. Okay, but there are no Greek commentators that even mention this until the 10th century. Okay, St. Jerome is actually the first one who comments on this passage as a part of the scriptures. And, you know, he's much, much later. Okay, so he's in uh, 5th century or so. All right, so the fact that Origen didn't comment on it, St. Cyril didn't comment on it, um, Irenaeus didn't comment on it, um, St. John Chrysostom didn't comment on it. Like this was n- not even a- a- available for any of these big fathers to, to comment on, which tells us like there's no way they just commented on everything and just ignored this. Right? So this just wasn't available for them. Okay? And so typically you'll see that whenever you read this passage, it's actually bracketed um, or it says like this, uh, belongs in the manuscript of St. Luke, like I mentioned, or it's actually mentioned at the very end of the Gospel of St. John. Okay? And it's interesting that this passage has over 80 textual variations. And so, when you look at this specific passage, it's about 180 words, and all of the original manuscripts you'll see more variations in this specific passage than any other part of the scriptures, okay? And it just doesn't appear in the, the church readings and the lectionary, so it was definitely something that kind of creeped into the gospel a lot later, okay? Any questions before I, I try to make sense of all of that? Everybody good? Okay. So, did this actually happen then? <laughs> I think that's probably one of the biggest questions we can ask, right? If it just appeared much later, this wasn't even on the radar of some of the, the greatest Bible commentators. Like, did this even happen then? Well, we can say that this is an authentic historical event that happened, right? And, and we know that, you know, what they debate um, about whether they should stone her or not was a common debate among the Jews, right? Because they would actually ask if it's more appropriate to stone someone or strangle someone if they were caught in adultery. Like there was a, there was a very hot debate at that time. <laughs> okay, so that's not unusual. Uh, we know that the way Christ responds is very consistent with the entire scriptures, right? He transcends the law. He's not legalistic. He's um, promoting love and compassion. And he's also very wise in the way that he responds, right? And we know that he has authority to forgive sins, right? So that all of that is consistent with this passage, right? So this is the Jesus we know. Like this is an event that's consistent with the scriptures, okay? And so, why do we include it in the scriptures if we say, okay, it's probably something that happened, but, you know, John didn't write it. 
If John didn't write it, it just kind of merged into the scriptures a lot later. How do we hold this with the authority of the scriptures? What do you think? Let me actually hear your thoughts about this. No thoughts at all? All right, well, for starters, we said that this is a, a consistent passage. It's an event that's consistent with the scriptures, okay? It wasn't documented from the first few centuries, right? But it was preserved by oral tradition. And, and that was the predominant way of preserving the truth and, and all of these um, historical events and all of these dialogues that Christ had with the people throughout the first few centuries. Right? So there's a lot of things that Christ said and did that were not written in the gospel accounts. Right? And remember in Acts, when St. Paul alludes to what Christ said, when he says, remember the words of Christ who said, it is more blessed to, what? to give than to receive. Where is a record of Christ saying that anywhere? It's not in the gospel accounts at all. Right? And so that's one of many examples. And then you also see this explicitly at the very end of St. John's Gospel when he says, if we just wrote down everything that he said and did, the books of the world wouldn't be able to contain it. Right? And so we know that some people just reference this event, um, like Didymus the Blind, for example, he's an Alexandrian father in, in the 4th century. He mentions this in, in one of his writings. Doesn't like comment on it, but he says that this is something that um, he remembers being passed down in oral tradition. The Didiscalia also mentions this as well. Even though no one really comments on it, even though it was not originally a, a part of the, the original gospel manuscript, we know that people remember it being passed down in oral tradition. Right? And it's consistent with the gospel, right? So what makes something scriptural is not necessarily the, the authority of authorship, right? It's not necessarily the original author writing it down. What makes something scriptural is the tradition of the church, right? Remember how the Bible came together. The church had to decide what we consider the Bible, right? Because all you had is a bunch of letters. You had different accounts of Christ's life. And the church had to come and say, you know, this is what we will prioritize in our reading in the church, Right? This is what we call the Bible. This is what we will give the people right? as like the priority and the authority to, sh to shape and mold their life. Okay? And so you'll see that there are a lot of other parts of the scriptures like that. For example, if you look at the epistle of the Hebrews, we don't really know who wrote that. Like The tradition is that St. Paul wrote it, but almost all the scholarship tells us that he didn't, right? But we do know that someone in that Pauline camp, you know, or his disciples, 
like someone in his group, his posse just came together and preserved what he taught them, right? And so the, the church still holds that as an ultimate authority in our life and as a part of the scriptures, even though we don't really know who wrote it. But it's not like he signed it by his name and we can say, oh, St. Paul wrote it, therefore it's the Bible. But the church gave it that authority. The church decided to elevate it and to say this serves as like a guide for your life. Does that make sense? Okay. So, do we have an issue with a story that comes into the scriptures later in the, the history of the church? No. Because again, the tradition has preserved it. Okay, and so the oral tradition is a priority in preserving the truth in the church and that's why it's it's important to understand the complexity of a passage like this because we don't believe in this notion of sola scriptura, that the, the Bible emerged out of nowhere, and uh, unless the original author wrote this, then it ho holds no authority in our life. That's more of like a Protestant doctrine that you'll see or, or hear about in our Western Christianity here, okay? And so the tradition is what produces the scriptures, and the church itself, like even what St. Paul tells St. Timothy, is that the church is the pillar and the ground of truth, right? That's the pillar and the ground of truth, because whenever the church has preserved something, then that that tradition validates it, it gives it its value. So when we have a passage like this, we don't have a problem with it. If you're Orthodox, you read this, you're like, okay, cool, it's in the Bible, the church accepted it, sure, John didn't write it, sure, it's not in the beginning of the first few centuries, but the church preserved it for us and gave it a place of authority in our life, and so we take it to heart, right? The people that have a problem with this are the people that believe in sola scriptura, or the, or the people that reject the tradition of the church, that come in this passage and say, oh, wait, like this is an issue. Does that make sense? Yeah. Isn't the term sola scriptura, from what I remember, doesn't that mean that the scripture is the only thing that matters? Exactly, it does. And so the implications of that is that you're rejecting tradition, because if the sole authority is the scriptures, then you really don't care for the tradition, right? But then what do you do with the passage of this? Because this is clearly a product of tradition, right? Yeah. This is something that came as tradition preserved it, right? right? So I, I know I spent a lot of time on this, but this is all to emphasize the authority of tradition in our church and to give the Bible its proper place of authority in the context of that tradition. Because I'm, I'm not trying to compare one or the other, right? We live by the scripture, we live by the word of God, right? But we don't look at it in isolation or we don't just ignore the tradition of the church, okay? Um, any comments or questions before we actually get into the passage? Okay, so let's set the stage, all right? Where does Christ come from? Like we know where this event takes place, right? It's in the temple. But where, where does he come from? 
the Mount of Olives. I need you guys to wake up. We got 10 minutes, we'll go strong for 10 minutes and then like end with a bang, all right? So it comes from the Mount of Olives. What's the big deal? What's the big deal about that? There's a, a, an interesting meaning behind the word olive, right? So Bede, the scholar, tells us that the Mount of Olives designates the height of the Lord's benevolence and mercy. Because the Greek word mercy is called eleos, right? That's the Greek word for mercy. That's what we always say, kyrie eleison. Eleison is have mercy on us. So kyrie is Lord, right? So eleos is mercy. We all know that, okay? And an olive plant is called eleon, right? So it shares the very same root. Okay, so Jesus made his way to the Mount of Olives to, um, to announce that the peak of mercy consists in himself. He came again at daybreak to the temple to signify that as the radiance of the New Testament was beginning, that same mercy was to be disclosed and presented to the temple, namely to his faithful ones. Right? And we know that this whole passage is about love, mercy, compassion, forgiveness. Right? So that's what sets the stage for this. It's beautiful to see that like, this is where he's coming. Like The source of this passage is mercy. Okay, so what actually happens? Somebody give me a quick recap. Or at least the beginning of the passage. Comes down, and then... So they bring him someone, right? Bring him a woman. What's the accusation? She was caught in adultery. And then the, the scriptures tell us, in the very act, right? So it's emphasized, caught in the very act, right? Now, there was always a double standard at that time, especially with the, the, the way they applied the law. Because would it be considered adultery for a man to just go find a Gentile woman if he's married and he goes to find a Gentile woman and sleeps with her? Is that considered adultery? No. Adultery is when you abuse another man's property. And because the woman was considered the property of the man, it was only the woman that can commit adultery, right? And so because a Gentile woman is not even considered a part of God's people, or a woman that's just not married, she's not the property of any man, right? You're not offending her husband, right? So there's no adultery there, right? But if a woman was to do that, then there's no doubt that she is considered a person committing adultery, right? Because she is like considered the property of the man. The man is not the property of the woman. Obviously, that's not the case in our faith, right? Because if you ever attended an Orthodox wedding, who has authority over who? It's not about the head or the body. I, I hear hope mumbling. Come on, this should be fresh on your mind. 
Exactly. Their bodies belong to one another, okay? The husband has authority over the wife, and the wife has authority over the husband. So I don't belong to myself, right? I belong to you. And you don't belong to yourself, you belong to me. So there's this mutual authority and equality within the couple. Okay? That wasn't the case back then. And the proof of that is they catch them like red-handed. Okay, why aren't you bringing the guy too? <laughs> it's not like, oh, like we saw her sneak off and then, you know, we heard that she slept with someone, we didn't know who he was. Like, they're supposedly caught in the act, so they know who the guy is. Where is he? Why not bring him to trial? Right? So, what's that? Yeah, yeah. So, but clearly it exposes their hypocrisy. Like, they're malicious, right? And sexist. <laughs> okay, so, aside from this double standard, right, whether... The man just like paid his way out, right? Like he paid them off and left or something, or they were just setting this double standard or whatever. Um, we know that they did not have the right intentions, right? Whoever wrote this, some scribe later decided to finally put it on paper, God bless his soul. So whoever wrote this tells us that they said this, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him, Right? So it's not like, oh, hey, um, we, we really want to understand the, the, the way to implement justice and righteousness. Like, how do we do this the right way? That's not what they had in mind, right? They wanted to just corner Christ, and it was so malicious that it was even at the expense of this woman's life. Because what's at stake here? To stone her. So like they couldn't have possibly stooped to a, a, a lower position, right? Okay, now let's talk about the actual case. Like there's a little predicament here, right? Because they approach him and tell him, okay, we caught her red-handed. And they tell him, well, you know, the law tells us to stone her. What do you think, right? So what's this predicament really all about? Okay, on one hand, if he is the merciful, compassionate Christ, he forgives her and then he transgresses the law, right? So you're kind of stuck there, but why not just say, okay, the law is the law? Yeah. Exactly. It betrays the whole gospel. Right? Because it's not about the legalities of like the letter of the law. Right? And it was also the, the Romans who would implement this death penalty. And so he had no jurisdiction to do that. Right? And remember, that's why they appealed to Pontius Pilate whenever they wanted to have him crucified. Right? Otherwise, they would have done it themselves. Right? They, I mean, they had no shame and they hated the guy. So why go through that extent to deliver him to Pontius Pilate? Right? So you're following, right? 
Christ is cornered. <laughs> like, he's doomed either way. Right? They have something against him either way. So here's the predicament. It's a lose-lose situation. All right. But, I mean, obviously, we know that's not the real case, but at face value, you see that there's an issue on both sides. Right? Now, how does he actually respond? What does he do instead? Does he just say, okay, well, I have to pick the better poison? Or how does he respond? First thing, play by play, come on. Okay, how? But like, the very first thing. <laughs> but so, look at verse 6, right? They, they said this, intending to accuse him, but Jesus what? Stooped down and wrote on the ground. Okay, let's talk about that first. Alright? So, there's a lot to speculate about what that means and what he actually wrote, but we do know a couple of things without speculating a whole lot. Okay? For starters, he bends down and he uses his finger to write on the ground. Okay? So, we do know that much. We may not really know what he wrote, but we do know that much. And there's a lot to say about that. So there's this interesting imagery because his very first response is to lower himself. Right? His very first response, it's like he's going down to the ground. Right? So I, I want you to just visualize this. Imagine that there's this heated scenario. They, they put her in, in the middle of the scene. Right? They, they set her in the midst of them. And they're attacking him. And what does he do? He just goes to the ground. Okay? And he starts writing with his finger. Now, what does that imply? Going down like this. Give me a word. Hmm? Humility. Right? So, this sort of condescension is the theme of his life. Right? That he lowers himself to the ground because they're basically trying to tempt him with this illusion of judging a woman and putting him in a position to elevate himself as a judge. Right? And so... The temptation is make yourself the judge, elevate yourself, put yourself in a higher position, and condemn this person. Right? So the temptation is one of pride. So his very first response is humility. Okay, he lowers himself. Because the temptation is judge this person. And what does it mean when I judge someone? I'm putting myself above them. So you notice just... In that very first step, there's so much to learn, right? So instead of inflating himself and elevating himself, he humbles himself. He goes straight to the ground. He lowers himself, even though he's the king of kings. And he is the true judge. But he sets that example for us, okay? And he did this as though he did not hear. So he, he, he doesn't even take into consideration this temptation to elevate himself. He just ignores it. Right? He just ignores it. And, and that's the best way to ignore temptations. As if you don't even hear it. Don't respond to it. Don't try to reject it. Just 
brush it off. Okay? He didn't get offended by their malicious intentions. He didn't get defensive. He just humbled himself. Okay, that's huge. All right, now, we may not know exactly what he wrote, but think about how he wrote. Okay, and we'll, we'll conclude with this here, because I know it's 8 o'clock. Did he get a paper and pen? Okay, he wrote with his finger on the ground. Okay, now, this whole controversy is about what? The law, right? Now, does that bring to mind something else about a law that was written by someone else's finger? (laughs) Okay, you're nodding your head. The Ten Commandments, okay? So you get this imagery of the, the Ten Commandments that were written by the finger of God. Right? And, and where does this story take place as well whenever Moses receives those Ten Commandments? On the mountain. Right? Just from the place that, that Jesus came from. Right? And so there's definitely like this parallel here. Like it alludes to the law coming down. And so Christ is putting himself in a position that transcends the law. Right? That he transcends whatever legalistic understanding they have about the law. Right? And so, Bede the scholar tells us, when the Lord was about to give pardon to the sinful woman, he desired to write with his finger on the ground in order to point out that it was he himself who once wrote the Ten Commandments of the law on the stone with his finger. That is, by the action of the Holy Spirit. And so the finger of God is the Spirit of God, right? That's the parallel right there, okay? And it's good that the law was written upon stone since it was given to subdue the inmost hearts of a hard-hearted and defiant people, right? So he wrote on these tablets of stone so as to penetrate the hardest of hearts. And so what Christ is doing here, he's writing on the ground, And by his mercy and his compassion and the forgiveness that they'll experience here, he's going to eventually convict them. And that love is what convicts everyone, right? It's a love that they didn't expect. Like we know how the story ends. Like they just walk away because they're so convicted, right? And so St. Augustine says, He wrote on the ground to signify that the time had now arrived when his law should be written on soil that would bear fruit and not on sterile stone as before. So he writes on the ground, on on soil, on on fertile ground, so that his word would take root and and bear fruit in them. Right? That was the intention behind what he did. Okay? And so we can speculate about the actual content of what he wrote. And I, I think... There's benefit to that, you know. I I think the fact that this is not explicitly told is what allows us to just imagine and contemplate and to meditate, right? And that's an important part of reading the scriptures, right? That the scriptures leaves room for us to meditate. And so a lot of people have meditated that he wrote their names on the ground, 
because he's the Lord of Lords and, and the King of Kings. He knows the hearts of men. He knows every one of their names. Or, or that he even wrote their sins on the ground. Because, again, he knows the very depths of our hearts. But in any case, I think it's beautiful that this is actually missing. We could always wonder, like, what did he actually write? Like, did he write all their names? Did he write all their sins? Did he write a specific sin? Like, you know, think about that. And I think that's, that's beautiful to contemplate as well. Right? So, any comments or questions as we conclude here? And glory be to God forever. Amen. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.